Well, hello, everybody, and welcome in. Another show of Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Well, it's game week. Friday afternoon, they've changed the game time to 1 o'clock. Mississippi State and Wright State to open the season. And uh, without further ado, our sidekick tonight, the pride of Louisville, Mississippi, where he was born and reared. He moved to Starkville, and he became the man about town, the guy that could run for any public office and just wipe anybody off the map, Mr. Charlie Whitfield. Any public office. Any public office. Well, I haven't thought about those possibilities, but now that you mention it, I think I'll stick to this. Are you sure? What would be the first thing you would do if you were elected to the overall public office, could do anything you wanted to do? I would fire Rob Manfred as commissioner of Major League Baseball. All right. Well, let's get going. All right. So, welcome back. And ban the Whistlers. The Van- Vandy Whistlers are gone. They have a new AD. They don't Vanderbilt. even get a warning. They're new, out. Period. Done. New AD at Vanderbilt. Maybe we can get that done. Okay. Game week, Friday afternoon, 1 o'clock, Mississippi State and Wright State. And, uh, of course, as you've been joining us the past couple of weeks, we've had our draft. We've drafted the the top 25, or Charlie picked a team of 25. I picked a team of 25. All-time greats at Mississippi State over the last 45 years. And, of course, the caveat, you could not have played a day in the major leagues. Here's what I've learned, Charlie, over the last week. Is your team wasn't as good as mine? Everybody has told me that I would wear your team out. I think you have polled a number of eight-year-olds within your own home, if that's the feedback that you're getting. My mother said there's no <laughs> way there's no way you can win. Okay, so let's recap what happened in the draft. We've had all kind of comments over the last week. A lot of people think Charlie, by virtue of having the first pick, really had a leg up of everything, and so he was able to, uh, to pull off a good draft. And so here's how it broke down, just to kind of repeat and rehash what happened as far as the draft. In the opening round, Charlie went with Kenny Kurtz. I went with B.J. Wallace. And of course, Charlie got the pick first because he says that he had an odd number written on a piece of paper. I chose even. He said it was odd. He got to go first. Therefore, Charlie got to go first. He went Kenny Kurtz opening pick. I went B.J. Wallace. He went Bobby Reed. I went Mark Gillespie. In the third round, Charlie went Gene Morgan. I went with Tommy Raffo. So I had a pitcher, an outfielder, and a first baseman. Charlie had three pitchers. He went with a fourth pitcher in the fourth round, John Harden. I went with a starter, Jeremy Jackson. And at this time, Charlie can just pitch, and that's it. He can't hit. He can't field. You throw the ball. You catch the ball. You hit the ball. You were one out of three through four rounds. Are you okay with that? Yes, because I was trying to get value in my picks. I know one thing about Mississippi State baseball. This is a program with a long, long and distinguished history of being able to hit the baseball. I knew that I needed to get pitching early, and I think the strategy paid off because you're going to rattle off a lot of guys that a lot of balls out of the park hit for very high averages. In fact, I think the very next guy – was a single sitter. That's okay. You've got to have a table setter, top of your order. Really wasn't at the top of your order. Charlie in the fifth round went with Buck Showalter. Of course, in start, well, he was known as Nat Showalter. In the fifth round, I went with Ross Mitchell, the guy that could throw the human wiffle ball. Then in the sixth round, Charlie went with a center fielder, Mike Kelly, played in the late 70s, early 80s. I came back with Don Mundy, who played in that same time frame as a right-handed starter, had a great career as a right-hander. Charlie went Richard Lee. I went with Hank Toms. Hank out of the bullpen is going to be phenomenal. Eighth round, Charlie Matthew Maniscalco. I went with Jody Hurst in center field. Ninth round, he got a second baseman, Brett Pirtle. I went closer, Van Johnson. Tenth round, Charlie went Thomas Berkery, kind of Swiss Army knife, could do it all around the infield. I went with a second baseman and an outfielder, Jeffrey Ray. 11th round, he went Brad Winkler. I went with Bruce Castoria. And then in the 12th round, Charlie went Russ Aldrich, and I went Steve Ginger. And so that was the first week of the draft. And then in, uh, in week two, you know, a lot of people thought, hey, Charlie, with those starting pitching, may have a little edge. I came back, really right of the ship in rounds 13 through 25. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's where I got you. The depth of my ball club is what's got you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Charlie went Connor Powers, 
Connor Powers. Connor begged me to choose him, and I told him, I said, Connor, I don't, I don't think you're worthy. But here comes Charlie. Connor choose- Powers never hit less than 300. He hit 19 home runs. He was a one of the defining keys to turning around Mississippi State's program in John Cohen's early years. You bet I'm taking Connor Powers, and I would like to apologize to him for not doing it on day one. That's how good he is. Brad Freeman, I went with Brad in the 13th round at shortstop. 14th round, Charlie went Brian Weiss. I went Kevin Donovan. Left-hander out of the pen, Kevin Donovan would be solid. Charlie went Brad Corley, right fielder in the 15th round. I went Dan Paradoa over on the left side. So Dan Paradoa played here at 86-87. 16th round, Charlie went Aaron Weatherford, another closer. He had like eight on his roster. I went Tracy Jobes. Uh, He went with a right-hander, Kyle Kennedy, in the 17th round. I followed that up with the assassin from Laredo, Texas, Luis Poyorena. Luis Poyorena won some big games here. So here's my question. (laughs) If we're going to start talking value, you picked him, what, the 18th round? 17th round. 17th round. Do you think I was going to pick him in 25 rounds? Yes. That was a reach. That's what we call a reach pick. The reason I picked him at that moment is because you were going to look at the stats and realize just what he did in relief and then as a starter. I mean, he's a guy that shut big teams down. Mm -hmm. And he started in right field in 2012 in the NCAA tournament. 18th round, Charlie went Barry Patton, a catcher. That was his second catcher. So, wait a minute. i got to stop you here. So, I've got Winkler, Weiss, Corley, (laughs) You got you got nine right, right field, you got nine right you fielders and Urena. I got gotcha. you. You got nine okay. right fielders and seven pitchers. Okay? Makes sense. I'm with you. Charlie went Barry Patton. I decided to get my first catcher, my field general Barry Winford. Nineteenth round, Charlie went Steve Susi, right-handed pitcher. I went Steve Diercole, who could play short and pitch. Twentieth round, great star- pick by the yeah, way. Absolutely. Twentieth round, Charlie went Terry Ellis, native of here in Startwell. I went Chris Young. Stowe, Ohio, right-hander. Uh, then in the 21st round, Charlie went Chuck Holly, the pride of Iuka, Tishomingo County. I went with Ty Martin, played at second, played at third, transfer from Florida. 22nd round, Charlie went Brandon Turner, who had the good season in, what, uh, 2007? Yeah, I think that's right. He was – he was really, really talented hitter. One of the best hitters. If he hadn't pulled that hamstring, he might still be hitting somewhere. Hit three ninety nine that year. I went with Dave Klipstein, third baseman, center fielder. Had great career in the early 1980s. Uh, 23rd round, Charlie went Trent and Torsha, left-hander. I went with Austin Sexton, that just unhittable changeup. 24th round, Charlie went Dell Bender. That was a good pick. And in the 24th round, I followed that up with John McDonald, a catcher, backup catcher, and from all indications, the original guy for Knock It Out John. Really? That's what I was told. That's a reason not to have him on my team. That's a that's a tradition. I want you to I want you to apologize to all the people who have yelled at the top of their lungs. Knock it out, John. Apologize. Twenty fifth round, Charlie went Hans Herzog, and I went with Tracy Eccles. Herzog off that 83 team that is one of my favorites that people will hear me talk about too much, but one of the best teams we had that didn't make it to Omaha. Okay, so every week what we're going to do here on Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau, when we start the show, we'll rehash the weekend. And, of course, this is the opening weekend of college baseball. We'll rehash the weekend. We'll talk about some midweek games as well. And then midway point of the show, we'll have our – Country Pleasing Sausage look back at Bulldog history. We'll talk about some great players, great teams, great moments, great tournaments we may, may have been in. And then we'll uh, kind of preview what's going on in the, in, the, in the coming week. And so that's kind of the breakdown of the show. And what we're looking for with the show is to kind of keep you around, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, and that's about it, once a week. And so during the week, tweet us your questions, at Bart Gregory, at Charlie Winfield, on Twitter, out of left field, at Bart and Charlie. So whatever you want to do, give us your thoughts. And so, Charlie, without further ado, this weekend, we open up college baseball Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Wright State, the Raiders, out of the Horizon League, coming in here to Duty Noble Field. And so before we talk about the opponent, let's talk about us. 
first of all, you want to talk mound first? Do you want to talk lineup first? The floor is yours. I will give you the thought. Well, that's interesting. You know, I'm just excited about being opening day. I, I absolutely love opening day. And here's what we know at Duty Noble Field with opening day. It's going to be wet. <laughs> it's going to be cold. It's going to be windy. And that's just definitional. So you, you bring up a good point about how much rain we've had in the springtime this year over the last six weeks. And, of course, baseball teams, you have those four-on-one practices. You have, you have fall, fall practice. You have your scrimmages in the fall. And then you break for Christmas. You come back, and in January you go those four-on-ones where the coaches can have four guys out there at one time. And then you break down into actual practice time. But when you look at the last few weeks, Charlie, about how practice time has been limited simply because you've had so much rainfall, so many coaches are talking about this year as kind of the, the great equalizer because you see early in the season so many of these northern teams coming south to open up their college baseball seasons. And what's always said for teams of the north? Well, how much can they get outside and hit? How much can they get outside and throw to live, you know, live competition? Well, everybody's kind of in the same boat this year. Yeah, absolutely. Although we, we ought to be used to it by now, right? It's just kind of the way it goes yeah. around here. We are blessed at Mississippi State to have good indoor facilities, and we're blessed to be able to play. One of the things that probably is not talked about enough is the absolutely fantastic job that our turf guys do, our field guys, Brandon Harden and his crew do, getting this field ready to play. It has poured and poured and poured here at Startville over the past week. It's a lot of water on the field right now. Let it stop raining. It'll be dry in a hurry. It will. And they came in a few years ago and, and, and just dug everything up when they built a new stadium. And so you, you do have a, a good base underneath. And uh, it's not going to be like, what, 1983 when they had just the, the deluge of, of rain early in the season, had that first opening day washed out. And I don't think we opened at home that year, what, March the 1st? Yeah, at 87 we didn't open until March 1. Did I say 83? Yeah, so it was 87 when we opened Duty Noble 2.0, I suppose, or at least at this current site. We opened what was the new old stadium. And, yeah, actually we're rained out on Saturday. Had to come back and play on Sunday. So we'll be back. And, you know, the the same kind of things go through. That it, It's interesting when you look at opening days. You have your years where you know what you have. All the way through, you have your years where you've got nothing but question marks. This team, to me, is going to be very interesting because there are some guys who you just know are players. You know they've been there. They've shown you they can do it at the highest level. And then there's a lot you feel really good about, but they just haven't done it yet. So many times you, you look at teams, and, and like you just said, Charlie, you have those name players. And when you have two and three guys on your team, and then all of a sudden you were, you were decimated in other areas, you overlook where you have those weaknesses and unknowns. This year, you've got five guys back, and, and probably a few more than that. Five guys that you know in your lineup what you've got. And you talk about five quality hitters in your lineup. And then on the, on the mound, pitching-wise, you've got JT Ginn back, you know, who was a first-round draft pick out of high school, who is a projected, once again, first-round guy, a guy that could have a good season this year and be drafted, once again, very high. He's your Friday night guy. But then after that, from a starting pitching role, you really have a lot of questions on this team. Just take a look at the pitchers yes. early on. So let's, let's go pitching, and let's start with the guy you just brought up. Yeah, you know, JT Ginn, you know, last year, and here's the thing about JT. Anytime you have a first-round draft pick or anytime you have a, a guy coming into your program that was drafted high in high school or could have been drafted high in high school, and what I mean by that is sometimes you, you talk about signability and teams will take a, a flyer on you in the 30th round even though you probably could be a third, fourth-round pick. But JT was a legitimate first-round guy coming out, coming out of high school. But the thing about it was he threw, what, 37 innings was the most he'd ever pitched. And then you come in and, and you pitched last year. He had great stuff. Fastball with tremendous movement. And that's the thing I think about with JT Ginn. It's not about the good hard slider and the breaking ball. It's the ability to have as much movement as he does with his fastball. It's interesting for me when you start to look at how guys project to being major league pitchers. To me, I still am a guy who starts my analysis with the fastball. And you go back to the year that Ethan Small had last year. I don't know that I've ever seen a guy 
live inning after inning. When you, you've heard the saying before that he pitches off his fastball, Small pitched with his fastball. I mean, we'd go three times. You know, we'd go three innings, and he never threw a curveball. It was absolutely phenomenal. Ginn has a different fastball. Small had that fastball that kind of stayed up, and it fooled you because you saw it belt high, and you swing, and you swing three inches under it. Ginn's is the other way. It's gonna. It's got some natural sink on it. So a, a different guy, but the same principle. The ball isn't where the hitter sees it, and he can beat you living off that fastball. I think one of the challenges for Ginn this year, I think I can identify two. First is he threw 86 innings last year. That was about 21 fewer than Ethan Small, basically three starts worth of games. Can you extend him to that 105 to 110 innings on the year? Can you get 14 to 20 more innings out of him this year so that when you get to the regional, he's ready to go and he's still pitching at his best and you're not worried about whether he comes back in? The second for me is whether JT Ginn will realize and accept the fact that his fastball is good enough and now and then, when you're ahead in the count, you don't have to nibble at the corners. Just throw it past somebody. Well, and, and I think that's a great observation because first and foremost, when you see JT Ginn and you watch a game from home, and that's the one thing that I notice when we're broadcasting a game is we're watching from that center field camera. And as much movement as he has that is a downward movement with his fastball, the first thing you think of is you see a lot of guys throw that if they're throwing 84, if, you're th- if they're a 95-mile-an-hour fa- fastball guy and they throw a changeup, you see it kind of fall off the table in that same trajectory. And you see that movement from home plate to, to, the, to the catcher, and then all of a sudden you see it flash up 95 miles an hour. And that's the thing that's crazy. And Lee Belt had that ability last year as well, is to get that kind of movement on a pitch over 90 miles an hour. You're essentially hitting a wiffle ball. Now, the thing about JT Ginn, and, and you mentioned just a moment ago, not realizing just how good your fastball is, sometimes you do begin to nibble. And I thought at times last year that was what got him in trouble is, okay, I'm going to try to play off the corner. I'm going to try to work on the corner. And sometimes when you try to get too fine, you start losing some pitches. And when you start losing pitches, you lose confidence. And another thing, Charlie, I thought against left-handed hitters, he really didn't have that – quote-unquote out pitch. He had the down downward slider. He had the, the fastball that ran down and away. But he's added a changeup this year, and he's worked on that changeup. And to me, that's the pitch that can really separate JT Ginn, especially in the top of these orders. When you get into SEC play with some really good left-handed hitters, that changeup is going to be probably his most important pitch. Yeah, and it's interesting. You go back and you look at baseball at the early ages and you see kids trying to throw curveballs and sliders and these kind of things when all they really need is a really good changeup. And the fact of the business is that principle continues all the way through baseball. A good changeup can get outs at the major league level just as much as it can in uh, 10th grade, and it can dang sure get you some outs in college baseball particularly that right-hander throwing against the left-handed hitters. And the thing he's also going to get, he's going to get some broken back ground balls. I mean, he's going to get some of those slow rollers, that downward action with a fastball. He's a guy that's going to play to the strength of this team, which I think we'll talk about later in the show. Footnote there because we're going to be able to field those grounders this year. Absolutely. We're going to have a very good infield here at State this year. Let's go to Saturday. A guy that the people around the program have been talking about for about a year now. And – Kind of a, uh, he's going to be a fresh face out there, and that's Christian McLeod. Big left-hander, power left-hander. And so, Charlie, the thing that stands out to me about uh, Christian McLeod, he's a guy with Friday night stuff that you're going to be able to throw out there on Saturday. To me, the question mark becomes he's had great bullpens, he's had great you know, scrimmages, but all of a sudden you put people in those stands, it's a different ball game. Yeah, and – you go back and you look, there's a long list of pitchers for Mississippi State who have gone on to be very good pitchers, great pitchers even, who early in their careers have struggled. More recently, in a different role, you can think of Jared Lebel, right? As a junior, when Lebel came to the mound, it was pack your stuff, head home, this baby's about to get ugly. As a senior, it was like, start packing up, we're about to win. It was yeah. the exact opposite. And I think a lot of that just had to do with starting to become comfortable standing on that mound in a very different environment. I like the fact, though, with McLeod that he's not straight out of high school. 
Yeah. He's, he's a freshman on the roster, but he's been around. He's taken some of it in. He's been around the team in these tense moments. So you hope that helps him. But here's the thing, and I'll kind of transition to the next day as well on Sunday with Eric Sarantola. Here's what you've got. Sarantola, the right-hander, who's the sophomore out of Ontario. McLeod, the left-hander on Saturday. What you have with both of those guys are guys who have stuff. Yes. And so all you've got to do now is learn to pitch. But you can learn to pitch. It's really hard to go get stuff. They've got it. Well, and the thing about McLeod, he's going to really remind you a lot of an Ethan Small with his fastball. We talked about JT Ginn. He's going to pitch underneath barrels. This guy's going to pitch above barrels. And so when he gets strikeouts, it's going to be moving up and down. And a lot of the contrast, don't you? Absolutely. The one day to the next. We think so much about in-game. You know, we follow the lefty with a righty or vice versa, the soft thrower or the hard thrower. It's just as important to me how you stack your games. That's why I love having that big left-hander in the middle who doesn't have the sink. He's got the rise. I think that's uh, has a chance to be a really good lineup. You hear coaches sometimes refer to it as that helium fastball that just takes off a four-seam that goes up in the zone. Real quick release, and uh, a good curveball could change up. And so that's the thing that – both of your Friday and Saturday guys have is they have three pitches that they've been able to locate well, and so you feel really good. If you know, you you look at McLeod who missed last year, missed the fall, had um, had uh, you know had some illnesses, couldn't play last year. They decided to to redshirt him, even though he had just great stuff. Um, could really pay dividends, and and like you said, then you know, all of a sudden you go to Eric Sarantola in, in a Sunday outing. And let me tell you who Eric Sarantola reminds me of. He, he reminds me a lot of Kumar Rocker up at Vanderbilt. He's a guy that's got just unbelievable stuff. And early last year as a freshman, I mean, he really struggled early on. And Vanderbilt stayed with him. And at the end of the year, he was the most dominant pitcher in college baseball. Well, he was unhittable by the time you got to the College World Series. But I think you just hit the point, and that is this. You have to be willing to let him get the starts and to settle into the role. And it may not be there day one. You hope it is. But you've got to believe in the stuff. And the other thing is you have to feel really good about the pitching coach Mississippi State has and Scott Foxhall. Just may, it's like hitters. Now and then you just got to give it a little time. you got to play through it. Like Sarantola, the thing you can't coach is the guy can throw. He's got movement. He's a big guy. I think he's got a chance to be really, really good. But you got to let it happen. And one of the things, too, is is you get past the freshman year that he had last year, kind of hit that wall midway point of the season. But now the ability to put pitches behind him and look forward to the next pitch, and that's the thing about this game, and especially when you have that kind of stuff, is no matter whether it's a good pitch, you get a strikeout pitch, or you walk a guy, you've got to be able to come back and really hone in pitch by pitch to the next batter. It's the easy thing to say, hey, just worry about the next pitch. And the thing that's also easy to talk about is, is for the guy sitting in section 102 to say, hey, throw strikes. Come on, throw strikes. And let me tell you, this guy's six six, and he's throwing in the high 90s. And what that means is lever action. When you're six six and you've got long arms, long legs, you've got to synchronize everything together. It's a lot easier for a 5'10 guy to have really good control and then a six six guy who's throwing 95, 96. You've got to have a lot of moving parts all synchronized perfectly. Well, and the other part of it, too, is it's not about throwing strikes. It's about throwing the right strikes because a fastball down the middle in the SEC isn't going to get a strike goal very many times because it's going to get turned around on you. Yeah. So that's uh, that's part of it, too, is learning to throw the right strikes. The guy that's kind of taking everybody by storm is Carlisle Kessler. You know, so much has been talked about him in the offseason. You know, Kessler, a, a transfer, graduate transfer guy from the southeastern Louisiana, a guy that just the scrimmages that I've seen, he he reminds you of, of a guy that just knows how to pitch. Now you don't want to give unrealistic expectations and say Greg Maddox, but it's that thought process of I don't have overpowering stuff. I don't have that electric curveball. I don't have that fastball at ninety six. He's going to pitch eighty seven to ninety, kind of like a Greg Maddox. But he has great control, and he's just a pitcher. He's a guy that's going to do a lot of different things to, uh, to, to upset the timing of the pitcher. You may call me crazy, but I think when we look back on the, on the gear and we, we do our postgame show, I think a postseason show, I think one of the storylines is going to be 
how did you get, what kind of pitching did you get from your graduate transfers? You go back, look, a couple of years ago, Zach Neff, J.P. France yeah. came in. They were huge parts of Mississippi State being able to advance to the College World Series. And a lot of what they did was they came in, they threw strikes, they didn't beat themselves, they didn't put guys on the bases. And so you've got Kessler and you've got David Dunlavey, um, a graduate transfer from Furman, who is a guy who same kind of deal in the sense of he's a guy that knows how to pitch. He's yeah. a guy that's been around and they know how to do it. Granted, it has not been against the same competition level that they're going to see on a Friday or Saturday in the SEC, but they've been around. And I think those two guys have a chance to be a big part of the story and how it's written for this season. You mentioned Dunleavy, and he and Kessler both being the grad transfers. You know, both those guys could be, you know, a, a long relief guy. You lose Brandon Smith, and that's what you hate is losing Brandon Smith, who is going to be a big part of long relief out of the bullpen. But now you've got Kessler. If you use him two innings on Friday night, all of a sudden you can come back and start him against Sanford on Tuesday. And Dunleavy as well. I mean, the thing about last year's teams, you had really two question marks, and and you may have more than this. Here's the things I thought about last year. Okay, if I had to get a left-hander out, and I need to bring somebody in to get some spin and get a left-hander out and a big at bad, Tristan Barlow was the guy you brought into the game. Uh, Tristan ran into a kind of a buzzsaw at times last season, um, especially late in the year, because he was trying to locate, and he had some trouble with that location. This year, when you start thinking about guys like Schimper and you know bringing in some left-handers out of the bullpen, but the thing about Dunleavy is last year, other than Cole Gordon, having a guy with spin, and I'm talking about a high-quality breaking ball, Cole Gordon had that. And so if you've got four guys in your lineup or you're facing four guys in the lineup that you need to spend some breaking balls up there and break it up, Dunleavy, who has a very good slider, could be your guy. And so you're not bringing your closer in like we were last year in the sixth, seventh inning and just hoping and praying you could get nine to 12 outs. All of a sudden now you've got a guy you can bring in in that sixth, seventh, eighth inning to kind of get you through some things if you have to have him in, in Dunleavy. Yeah, you've got a chance to bridge it. And it's important to have that kind of guy because when we start talking about a lot of these young arms, we start talking about power. Yeah, You start start talking about guys who can really run it up there. And it's going to be really interesting to see where things fall out. You know, a lot of talk about who's the closer going to be on this team. And I don't know that we really know the answer to that yet. I think Landon Sims has got a chance, freshman right-handed pitcher. Um it, it's going to be interesting to say. I think Will Bednar may have a chance for it's over. He's a guy who's going to get a lot of attention because he's going to light up the yeah. scoreboard in terms of uh, miles per hour. The radar gun's going to get lit up when he comes in. And that's when I look at this pitching staff, I see five guys that when they warm up and all of a sudden the, the miles per hour is thrown up on the video board, you're going to have some oohs and ahs with the crowd. You know, of course, J, you know, JT is going to throw in the mid-90s, your Friday night guy. I think Christian McLeod's going to do the same thing. Sarantola, of course, on Sunday. The thing you have with all your starters is electric stuff. But I tell you what, Landon Sims and Will Bednar are going to be the same way. When they come on the field and when they throw, you're going to say, wow. The thing about Sims is all of a sudden you're throwing a freshman out there. You hope to have him as a closer. I can't remember a time. Of course, you know, Holder, his first year, late in the year became really the closer. Caleb Reed started that season as a closer, and then Holder kind of morphed into that role. But that's very, very tough for a freshman. The thing about uh, Landon Sims, and just by being around him just a few times, he, he's real relaxed and he's aggressive. He's kind of a football mentality. Uh, he played high school football. And so he's just one of those guys that kind of accepts that role. But you have to have a different mentality when you walk out there to try to close down a ball game. And the thing about Web, uh, Bednar, man, he's, uh, he's just an elite talent. Um, he's just getting going. He didn't pitch any in the fall. And so you, you've got some really good stuff with some young guys. Yeah, it takes a different kind of makeup to take the mound in the ninth inning. You know, the analytics guys would tell me I'm wrong about that. All the major league guys now that start looking at analytics say that three outs is three outs. I don't believe that, and no amount of computers can ever convince me that that's the case. I think you have to have that makeup, and that's why I love the guys who are multi-sport athletes in those spots because the one thing about it is they've had to compete a lot. They've had to compete in different situations. 
And uh, that's kind of why I'm really excited about what we're going to see from Sims. And, hey, we haven't talked about Spencer Price, whose velo is back up. You know, Riley Self had his velo is ticking back up a little bit as well. But guys that have been around the block understand what it's like to pitch in this league that are going to throw strikes. That's a big key, of course, and guys coming out of the bullpen, Spencer Price and then uh, Riley Self. Uh, Rokos, true freshman, you know, left-hander. You know, Rokos is kind of an undersized guy. And, um, you know, he's not a big guy freshman from Johns Creek, Georgia, but he's he's got really good fastball, live arm, 89-92, surprising with that fastball because he comes out there and he's not that, he's not that big, powerful body that you see with a Christian McLeod, but he's a sneaky fastball at 92. Well, one of the things that came out, I was complaining about the Major League Baseball commissioner, one of the new rules coming out for this season is a three-batter minimum for a pitcher. Now, we don't have that in college baseball, and so you better believe we're going to see a lot of guys come in for matchups. Yeah. You know, one thing I think we figured out about Chris Lamonis is he likes a matchup where he can get it, and so then all of a sudden you start talking about a guy like a Chase Patrick. If you've got to roll a double play, if you need a pitcher to come in and throw a double play, that may be your guy because he's going to get sink. He's going to get some ground balls. And then you've got, you know, some other guys you may bring in when you feel like you've got you've to get a strikeout. Maybe that's a Bednar there. Maybe it's a Shemper. So um, Jackson Forrester, a guy you think about. If you've got to have a strikeout, maybe that's where you go. So, boy, we've got uh, – I think we have a absolute ton of talent. We have a lot of arms that are really exciting the key is they just have to go do it, and they just have to – the only way to do it is to do it. <laughs> you yeah. just got to get there. There's no no pitching lab, no false scrimmage, no anything makes up for the experience of doing it. And so that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this weekend. Each and every week our show brought to you by Farm Bureau. Go with a home team at Farm Bureau. And uh, if you're going to do your insurance, make sure you do it with somebody that, that you know and you trust, you go to church with, you drop your kids off at school with, and you're very, very big part of your community, and that's Farm Bureau throughout the state of Mississippi. So go to favorites.com and go with the home team. That's Farm Bureau. Charlie, so we take a look at the pitching. There's some guys we haven't even talked about. Jack Egan, they've dropped him down a little bit. Last year, Egan got the uh, right-handers out well, had trouble with left-handers. They've dropped him down a little bit, trying to get a little bit more movement um, and, and kind of become a left-handed match guy if you had to use him as a left-handed match guy. I so mean, let, let me ask Xavier you Lovett. We I mean, have a, a question from Facebook, and that is, who's your midweek, mid-week game starting pitching going to be? And I think that a lot of that is going to be determined about how you use your guys on the weekend. If it's a Kessler or Dunleavy, some of those guys, how much action do they get and when do they get it? I mean, do the, does, you know, does Kessler pitch on Friday backing up JT Ginn? That's the whole thing there. So if he does and he throw three innings, then all of a sudden you can come back Tuesday night against Sanford and do that. Um, I think just so much of that is going to be determined about how they're utilizing the weekend. Well, and the other thing I do not rule out is what I'll call the bullpen game. Oh, yeah. I do not rule out, and we've seen this before at Mississippi State, where, all right, nine guys, you got an inning. It's basically your bullpen day. So even guys yep. who threw on the weekends, on Tuesday or Wednesday, you're giving me one. Yep. So that's a quick look at the pitching. We've got uh, got to look at the hitters. We're talking about this week's opponent in Wright State. But first, real quick, we're going to take a look back at our opening day memories, and it's brought to you each week by Country Pleasing Sausage. Henry Cooper in the game down in Florence, uh, Country Meat Packers on Highway 49. Stop in there. Opening season of baseball, opening weekend of baseball, and so if you're thinking about putting some things on the grill, that's a perfect place to go by. And, of course, all of their Country Pleasing Sausages located in all you know Kroger's, Vowels, and different grocery stores throughout the southeast. And so Henry Cooper and those guys doing a phenomenal job. It's all about product. They've got a tremendous product. And as you can tell with me and Charlie as well, Charlie not as much as I uh, or Matt Wyatt, we, uh, we like to eat. And it's a good, very good product, country-pleasing sausage. Charlie, the thing I remember about the opening weekends to me have been kind of negative, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like the, the years you have those high expectations coming off a of College World Series, and then all of a sudden you pop out and, you know, you lose that opening game, and it's that reminder of the game of baseball, the volatility of the game, that if you get too high or too low, this game will kill you as a fan, as a player, as a coach, anybody associated with it. 
because you're going to lose sometimes. And that's the thing about it is you're going to lose, and we've lost a lot of opening weekends. And this team we play this weekend in Wright State is going to be a really good team. Look, they beat Ole Miss uh, on opening weekend last year, split a couple of games, played in Oxford. I was thinking back to opening days for me, and the very first one that I remember vividly, I didn't attend. But it was 1983, and I listened to this ball game on the radio, listened to Jim Ellis call it, and it was Rafael Palmero's first game, but it was opening day. That was the – talk about that 83 team all the time, but we opened up the season with Robin Jeter. We had an error to start the ball game. Ball went through the shortstop. We're playing Mississippi College, and they score seven in the first, <laughs> several of those unearned. And so Robin Jeter, who, who, by the way, was a really good pitcher. I nearly picked him in our draft. I had him on my board. But he gave up seven runs, not all of them earned again, and got one out. And then Mississippi State went to Jeff Brantley, who was a sophomore. Brantley came in, got a strikeout, got a ball back to the mound, and gets out of the inning. And all of a sudden, Mississippi State comes to bat in the bottom half of the frame. Rafael Palmero went three for six that day, had four RBIs. First at bat, hits a home run. He had two others that nearly went out, probably would have if it had been so cold. You cut it to seven to three. Don't give up anything in the second. And then in the third, Mississippi College puts up five against Jeff Brantley. Going back to my thing about pitching, while you got to give it time, opening day isn't always the end of the story. You lose 12-8 to eight to Mississippi College, and that's a pretty difficult to even comprehend now. It was the first time in the modern era that Mississippi State had lost at home to Mississippi College, but that went on to be a very good team. The other one that I remember was 1987. And 1987 was kind of special in my memory for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was when what I call the the old new duty noble field, but the last stadium that we had opened. We were actually rained out on a Saturday, came back. Nelson Ariete uh, pitched seven innings. Mike Martin came in and pitched the final two. We beat Birmingham Southern four to one. But that was the first game for a Burke Masters. The first game for Pete Young, who, by the way, again, don't judge too early, went over four of that day. Richie Graham. Yeah, Barry. Richie Graham had a double, maybe two in that ball game. Dan Paradoa had a couple of doubles. Barry Winford had a double that day. And so a lot of those names that we were talking about during our draft opening up that season right there. I had two memories. One is in 98, you came off the College World Series in 1997, first game under Pat McMahon. And you've got all those guys coming back, and you lose the season opener to South Alabama, and it, it kind of kind of knocked you back a little bit. What fourteen thirteen? I think South Alabama won that game, and then the game I remember was you had Paul Mahalam coming back, two thousand three, second year under Coach Ron Polk, in that second stint, and you're playing Birmingham Southern that opening weekend. We had the tournament here. We used to start the season, and we're going to start Paul Mahalam on, on Friday night, and there was this there was this cat from Birmingham Southern. Derek Griffith, I, I did the game. Jim was broadcasting basketball, so I did the game. I remember it was so cold. It was like less than 1,000 people in the ball game. It was so cold, and this guy rolls out here and completely shuts us down. And looking back at that season, that was his only complete game. He threw a complete game that night. Mahalan pitched well as well. I think we lost 4-1. to one. We hit a home run. Uh, Tyler Scarborough hit a home run. The guy from down at Meridian Community. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He hit, a, he hit a home run. We lost 4-1, to one, and the game took two hours and, like, 19 minutes. And we played it quick, but Derek Griffith absolutely just sh- shut the door. And that's our look back at Bulldog history this week, brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. Okay, quickly, let's take a look at the lineup. I mean, where do you, what do you think in the lineup-wise? You know, Rowdy Jordan moving from left field into center field. That leadoff spot, Jake Mangum leaving that uh, leaving that void. He's been in that leadoff spot for four years. So Rowdy Jordan going to take his spot at the top of the order. Yeah. So the key for Rowdy Jordan, you go back and you look. You're 20 games into the season last year, coming off the series at Florida, and Rowdy's hitting I think 151, and he ends the season hitting 290. And so if you can take second half Rowdy, second two thirds Rowdy, <laughs> and have that all year long you're going to have very good play in center field. Well, and Tanner Allen had the same situation last year early, too. Some some guys just hit it well when it's cold, some some don't. And, you know, Tanner and, and Rowdy both kind of pressed early in the year, and now you've got both of those guys in your outfield. Tanner Allen upped his average over 100 points on the back half of the season last year. And so if you've got the 400 hitter 
that we finished the year with, uh, starting from day one, you're going to have something really special with, with both those guys. So Tanner Allen going from first base to right field. Of course, Rowdy in center. Who's your left fielder? I think it's going to be Brandon Pimentel, most likely. And, and this is a guy who's uh, going to be new to Mississippi State fans. But the way that we sit around and talk about Pete Young and the first time I saw these guys play, we may be talking about him that way before long. This is a guy who's got a real chance to be that 300 hitter, 15 home run kind of guy. I'd be very surprised if he isn't a double-digit home run hitter this year because what do you hear when you hear people talk about him? He knows how to impact the baseball. Community college transfer, played at Howard College, uh, community college last year, El Paso, Texas native. Brandon Pimentel, of course, you've got uh, some other guys out in left field. Bryce Brock's had a really good uh, fall and spring. And then uh, Brad Cumbust has also played some left field as well. Now, the infield is, is is pretty much stacked at the three positions. You think about Josh Hatcher, who moved from the outfield back to infield this year, and you ask yourself the question, you know, why Tanner Allen is moving from first base to the outfield and why is Josh Hatcher moving from the outfield to the infield? Well, to be honest with you, just the way that everything kind of works out, you know, Hatcher is pretty much a first baseman, solid defensive first baseman, and Tanner Allen in high school was an outfielder. And so just it's just kind of some mix and match and, and trying to get to your, your top hitters you know, on the field, and Hatcher's had a great offensive offseason. Yeah, and if you go back, I think you want at first base. I think you, there are positions where you can platoon. I don't like doing it at first base personally any more than I have to at this level. And what you're going to see with Josh Hatcher, it's a guy who started 28 games last year. This is a guy who's going to start basically all of them this year unless something really goes awry. So I think at that point you worry less about moving guys around and you you get them in their best spot. I think Josh Hatcher is best defensively at first base. And I think Tanner Allen, a couple of things you'd say about Tanner. Number one, he's just a good hitter. And if you can hit as well as he can, you got to play somewhere. Over the last two years, only two guys in the lineup played every single game. Jake Mangum, Tanner Allen. Yeah, but this is he's a big-time hitter. I think Tanner Allen's one of those guys that if you said, go play center field, go play whatever, he's just a ball player. He's a ball player. He'll figure it out. So I'm fine putting him out there. And then you come to the infield, and I think we're going to see as good a middle infield as we've seen in quite some time, even in terms of the big picture. And we can debate about who was the best defensive infield. Maybe talk about Pirtle, Seth Heck, some of those guys. But in terms of the all-around package, Foscue and Westberg's going to be tough for me to find anybody else better. The thing that showed me the, the coaching ability of Chris Lamonis last year was the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to move – my best third baseman at second base. And having Foscue at second, Westberg's a guy that has gotten tremendously better at shortstop. He may project as a third baseman in the big leagues, but he's a big guy that can move, and he has a solid arm. He's going to be solid for you at, at shortstop. Now at third, that's going to be, you know. i got to stop you one second. got to make one comment about Foscue. When we talk about Rowdy Jordan starting slow, finishing strong, when we talk about Tanner Allen starting slow, finishing strong, Foscue's pretty interesting because he was basically a 330 hitter all year long. Yeah. Any day you wanted to go pick the stats, there wasn't a lot of volatility. Foscue was the guy, legend home runs, you know, 14, but he was the guy who just showed up every day. He did not have back-to-back hitless games last season. I mean, this this guy, I get it. He was an all-SEC second baseman, and I still think he's underrated. I still don't think he gets the attention he deserves. I think Foscue is a big-time college baseball player. So if you have two questions about the infield, it's got to be at third base and then behind the plate. Yeah. At third base, you're going to have three guys. All three can really give you something different or solid guys. You James Jordan and then Leggett at third. And then behind the plate with you know Hancock and you've got uh, you know Tanner back there as well, Logan Tanner. And so it's um, you've got some guys. And all of those guys are in the same situation. They give you a lot – but it's kind of unproven. Yeah, so what do you know about those guys? They want to see time on the field. Number one, be able to hit because we still got to have a designated hitter, right, so be able to hit. Um, and to some degree, just don't cause problems. Be a competent fielder at third base. Yep. Now, here's what I love about this right State matchup. This blew my mind. In fact, I had to go back and double-check this. I looked it up three places to verify it. They had a guy last year steal 60 bases. Led the nation. 
He's gone now. Gone. But they've got a returner who stole 30 or right at 30. So this is a team that will run, run, run. And so we're going to find out a lot. There's going to be a lot of pressure on the catchers this weekend. And you talk about J.D. Orr stole 60 bases. He was a 10th-round draft pick last year by the Marlins. They lost three guys in the top 10 rounds of the draft. Uh, Peyton Burdick, he was the, the Horizon League player of the year, went in the third round, hit 407 with 15 home runs. Then Seth Gray was one of their infielders. He was first-team all-league. He went in the fourth round of the Twins. And so this is a team that's losing their leadoff guy as well in J.T. Orr. We're losing Jake Mangum. And so you've got two teams that are looking to fill that void at the top of their order. Uh, they're picked to finish second in the horizon behind uh, Illinois-Chicago. Who played at Illinois-Chicago? Curtis Granderson. Curtis Granderson played at Illinois-Chicago. His parents are from Chula, Mississippi. Went to Valley, moved to Chicago. Curtis Granderson just retired a couple of weeks ago. They beat Illinois-Chicago 5 of 6 in regular season last year, won the regular season championship, and then lost in the conference tournament at home to Illinois-Chicago and then to Milwaukee. They've only got six teams in the Horizon League, and so they play 30 conference games. They play everybody twice, two three-game series, home and away. And so they were the only Horizon League team last year that had an RPI in the top 100. They had an an RPI of 87, which is tough to do in that league. But they beat East Carolina, they beat Oklahoma State, and they beat Ole Miss. They had some quality wins. And so this weekend is not a walk in the park. Yeah, we talked about lighting up the radar gun. This is a a group that can pitch it as well, and they've got some good young guys. Bradley Bramer is a guy who, uh, a 6'5 right-handed pitcher, He's going to be a sophomore, but out of high school, he was a 23rd round pick. So it's a guy who's who's got some talent. Uh, and then they got a guy, Jake Schrand, who's a junior out of the bullpen. Now, this is the probably the closest uh, to the Nuke Lelouch guy, right? Walked 18, <laughs> struck out 18. Because last year, I think, you know, had a, he was the guy who came in and would walk eight, strike out eight. But he can throw it about 96. Don't okay. think it only hurts Paul Club. <laughs> That's right. He can run it up there. And then they got a guy, Daniel Cruiser, coming back from injury who's a junior. There are a lot of guys. If you start to look at where, you know, draft-eligible guys and people who are on boards, this right state team is a good baseball team. Now, are they SEC quality? No, of course not. But here's the thing. You don't have to have depth for a weekend. And they'll be able to run some guys across the mound. This is a very competent team. And what I love about them is think about basketball. Early in the season, what do you say? Well, we've got to get ready for that team that plays the zone. You know, we've got to get ready for that team who does the zone press, the team that does something different. What you're going to see about Wright State, I believe, if history holds, number one, they will take a pitch. Oh, yes. They will take a pitch. And on base percentage. Walk. That's all they care about. It's on base percentage. You know, they're starting shortstop, I think, walked 52 times, you know, last year. And he wasn't even the leader on the team. And so you've got guys who will get on base, and then they like to run. And so what that's going to do, it's going to test some of these catchers. And I, look, as much as I want to get three wins, I want to get better. Yeah, I want to get better for this weekend. And what I like about Wright State is they give you a chance to do that. Pounding the strike zone. We saw that in non-conference last year. State lost one non-conference game. And I think a lot of that was not nibbling, not to, not wasting pitches when you got ahead 0-2, 1-2. It was coming after hitters, being aggressive on the mound. And I think that's one of the things you're going to see this team do uh, all season long, especially here early in the year. Of course, hey, you've got a dress rehearsal this weekend, and you hate to call it a dress rehearsal because Wright State is phenomenal. And then you've got Sanford, a team picked to win their league. And then next weekend, you've got Oregon State. So you better be figuring some things out in a hurry because the non-conference schedule this year is faux-show series stuff. All right, Bart, let me ask you a few questions that we've got. Okay. One from our good friend Steve Polk. Did you draft him, by the way? No, I did not. Okay. I, I put him as my bullpen catcher. Okay, well, that's probably fair enough. Steve Polk, former Bulldog, asked, what's the over and under on home runs for this 2020 team? For reference, we hit 64 a year ago. I think we're going over that. If I set the over and under at 72, what are you taking? I'm taking over. Yeah, I think this team's going to be able to run it out of the yard. I do, too. I, 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 just when you look at the guys, you're not losing many guys who hit just a ton of home runs last year, and you look at all those guys. I think adding Josh Hatcher in the lineup, I think Josh is going to hit some bombs. I think Foscue, all those guys are just embedded in there together. And so you're going to see some pitches to hit, and I think this team's going to bunch some runs together. 
Uh, a couple of other questions. Jay in Baltimore, we talked about this. Will Ginn be asked to throw more innings this year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you certainly hope so. And here's the thing, too. JT, you probably won't see him throw a ton of pitches this weekend because we talked about the cold weather and the scrimmages. It seems like he's he's had the, the tough card every time you, draw, you go out, the tough draw, because it's been really, really cold. The last thing you want to do in a scrimmage is hurt your Friday night guy. And so I think they will begin to – increase his pitch count as the non-conference season goes on. and so, But I do think JT will throw a lot more innings this year. I thought this was an interesting question from Jay in Baltimore, too. Can you recall the most recent season where we entered game one with no real closer? Last year? Yeah, I think you can make that argument, right? I think so. Because we really didn't know that Cole Gordon was going to be your – you're closer. Because if you went back the year before, you'd have been thinking more like Riley Self or a yeah. Spencer Price maybe. Spencer Price. The year before. Um, yeah, so and then you go back. I think you kind of had that bridge year coming into Caleb Reed. You didn't know uh, yeah. what, what you were going to have with Caleb Reed. And, and then I don't think – I think we knew Jonathan Holder would be the closer. I don't think we expected him to be a 21 saves guy. No. Yeah, but I, I, I think um, – Here's the thing. Here's the positive is you don't feel like anything is by committee. I mean, you feel like you've got legitimate stuff. You've got electric stuff. And to me, that's the positive is you feel like you've got some pieces to the puzzle that can really become that role. And I think one thing, too, that is probably different about baseball, certainly at the major leagues. Well, let me correct that. For some teams in the major leagues, and then I think we've seen it more so in college, is – Look, when the Yankees had Mariano Rivera, you know he's going to throw the ninth. Yeah. When you've got a Roldis Chapman, you know he's going to throw the ninth. But I think what we have seen more and more kind of analytically is now it's not so much whether they pitch the ninth, but whether they pitch that high leverage situation. Yeah. You know, if it's a 4-3 ball game on Sunday. In the seventh. And we haven't used Landon Sims all weekend. That may be your guy, even though you may otherwise put it, the label closer on Even him. in the fifth inning. You may see a Landon Sims as, as your guy in the fifth inning on a Sunday if you hadn't used him. And so, uh, to me, it, it's, it's um, you know, Cody Greenhill at Auburn is kind of what I think about in that situation. Hey, if I hadn't used him by the fourth inning of Sunday, I'm, I'm – You don't want to finish a weekend without him throwing. Absolutely. And so, I'll tell you what, we could talk all night. That's the great thing about it. This college baseball, it's Starkville, Mississippi. This place is going to be great this year. We had a tremendous year last year. 1 o'clock on Friday, 2 o'clock Saturday, then 1 o'clock on Sunday. Three-game series with Wright State. And then we're back at Duty Noble before our next show. It'll be Tuesday night against Sanford. Tuesday afternoon, 4 o'clock start against Sanford. And so, Charlie, I tell you what, man, we can stay here all night. I feel like we barely touched the surface of all the things I want to say about this team. I guess the good news is we've got more weeks to do it. We'll be back next week out of left field, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance. And so, uh, guys – let us know your thoughts at Bart Gregory, at Charlie Winfield, at Bart and Charlie to the Out of Left Field Show. And so let us know what you think going into the 2020 season. So you've been listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.